Good morning. You guys okay? You seem demure, quiet. Is that too introspective this morning? Let's do this. Let's get you moving. As an act symbolically of honoring God, let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. As I read from Luke chapter 15, it's a long reading, so don't lock your knees because you might faint. We'll read through verses 32, picking up in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or that woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Picking up in verse 11, he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them, them being the sons. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and let us celebrate. For this son, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends." But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
The sin's the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God and the stories that our God gives, may they last forever. You may be seated. Told you it was long. We're going to take a couple weeks here at the beginning of the year to look at one of the most famous and most well-known stories of the Bible. The term the prodigal has entered even to non-Christian vernacular. The kid who runs off from home is known as the prodigal, the prodigal son. And as you see in verses 1 and 2, it's important to understand the context of what's going on here is Jesus is surrounded by the people who are known to be the worst sinners of the day. Tax collectors and sinners. Sinners is probably a euphemism for prostitutes. It was such a scandalous uh, kind of welfare that they had that people wouldn't even mention the kind of work that they did. And yet the Pharisees of that day, they're angry and they're questioning that Jesus would eat and spend his time with such people, with such sinners as these. And it's in response to these sentiments, to the questioning of the Pharisees, that Jesus shares a series of stories. And Luke actually, the way he displays this and writes this out in Luke chapter 15, is he's writing it kind of like Shakespeare would write one of his plays. Shakespeare would almost always have five acts in his plays. Luke doesn't have five acts, he has three acts. He first has the story of a shepherd who pursues a lost sheep, then the story of a woman who seeks and finds a lost coin, and then finally, to the story to which we will give our attention and focus today and for the next couple of weeks is the story known as the prodigal son. But this t- entitling of this passage is a misnomer. For unlike the first two parables where there was one lost sheep and one lost coin, in this account it begins like this. And a man had what? How many sons? Two. Two sons. Can you count? Two sons. You see, Act 3, it doesn't just simply have one scene, but it has two scenes. One scene will follow the prodigal, and the other will follow the older brother. We'll look at the older brother next week, because this last scene, this added-on scene with the older brother, leads to a great question. It's a disturbing and challenging scene for religious, religious folks like us. But we'll get to that next week. This week, I want to draw our attention to the classic story of the first brother, the prodigal son, a story with the exact same plot line and plot headings of the previous two stories of the lost sheep and the lost coin. This is a story about being lost and then being found. And because it's not just an inanimate object like the coin and the sheep, well, I guess the sheep is not inanimate, but at least not a being with a conscience, this is a story about running away and a story of coming home. There are good reasons why the story of the prodigal son has taken much prominence within the life of the church and even comes to be known in the broader culture in general. Whether you're a Christian or or not, you, you have some idea, and there is this idea of running away from home. When you're a little kid, right, when your kids really tick you off, you're like, that's it! I'm running away from home, and you get on your bike, and you, you get to the stop sign. You know the stop sign that your parents say, you can go that far, but no further. And you said, that's it. I'm crossing the line. I remember I did this. I went to the convenience store down the streets, and a great act of rebellion, <laughs> running away. Every generation has its group of children that are its prodigals, right? They run off from home. They reject 
all the things that home stands for, and they run off and they live life that they want to. But then eventually, some of those children come back. The prodigal that comes home. And this is a story of homecoming. To move out of the general and into the spiritual, this is a parable. And this is a story and a picture and a reflection of our spiritual relationship with God. You see, the Father that's, that is um, given here in this account is God the Father. And it's, as it is the beginning of our year, and some of you have recommitted yourself to coming home to God, maybe you've said, that's it, I want to have a deeper experience of God again. I have felt far and distant from Him, and I want to experience as what the prodigal son experienced. What does he experience at the end of the story? He experiences the kiss of the Father. And that's what you're feeling. That perhaps God has felt distant from you from quite some time. Maybe you're sitting in church, but it feels cold. Maybe you open your Bible, but there, you feel no connection to God. Maybe, maybe you've run off. Maybe you've hardly spent any commitment to, uh, in, on spending time with God's people or with God himself. You have indeed played the prodigal in your own life. And you've committed. You're not really sure why. Committed, you recommitted yourself to trying to get to know this God, to having spiritual experiences again. Listen, if you want to come home, if you want to come home to a new life of security and joy in the Father's house, there are some things you've got to know. And this story helps us understand what those things are that we've got to know about coming home. The first is this. If you want to come home, you've got to know why you left home first. You've got to know why you left there's a couple of reasons. Implicit in the return is a leaving, right? If you feel like you've got to head home, if you feel like you've got to get connected to God again, there is a, there's a time in which you left, in which you left home, in which you left the Father. And it's only when you have the courage and the depth to ask the question why you left will you come to actually run home with the fullness and joy that you ought to. There's two reasons, I think, given in this text to tell us why we left home. The prodigal left home, and we have left home because we've rejected dad. Because he rejected the father. See, the great sin of this man's life, as often people reflect on and focus on, some people think that the great sins of his life is that he squandered his money, and that he slept with prostitutes and got drunk. These are classic sins. These are law-failing sins, that he squandered his money and lived a party lifestyle. This is what we classically understand to be sin. When you think of a sinner, it's this kind of lifestyle. But that is actually, that's not the core of the, the prodigal's problem. The core of the prodigal's problem is found right near the beginning when he says, comes to the father and says this, Father, give me my share of the estates and let me be. All the early ancient Near Eastern hearers of this original story would have heard this and gone, No, he didn't. No, he didn't. See, in that culture, if you were to go and ask the father for your inheritance before the father died, it was tantamount to saying to the father, Father, I want your stuff, and I want you dead. Be gone. I want nothing to do with you. And not only does he take the father's stuff, he then takes the father's stuff, and he goes and he squanders this. Understand this, and this is really important. This is not an illegal act. You see, in God's economy, things like prostitution is fairly illegal. It violates God's law. Things like getting drunk, that violates God's laws. But what we see is, we don't necessarily see some law that says, hey, misuse the father's gifts and tell the father you want your inheritance and then to be gone. 
Now, what you see here is the core of the prodigal's issue, though, is a relational problem. Because all legal failures, all missteps of failing to keep God's law are inherently relational rejection of the Father. This request doesn't break the law. It breaks the Father's heart. That's what's going on here. And that is what sin is. We need to come to understand that the sin is first and foremost a rejection of God as our Father. What he is saying to the Father is he's saying, I wish you were dead. He's saying, I want your things, Father, but I don't want you. And that's how so many of us live. We say, God, I want you to give the money, me the money and the relationships and the good jobs and the blessings of, of a great life and a great house. But to you, I say, I want nothing to do with you. But if you won't give this to me, my goodness, rue the day, God, that you won't give me the blessings that I have asked for. My dad likes to always use this kind of illustration when talking about rebels and who, who have this kind of attitude. And he talks about the teenage girl who says to her mother, I hate you and I wish you would die. But first, could you take me and my friends to the mall? This is pretty much, that's a very pedantic way of saying that's what we say to God in our rejection of him. And here's what's so interesting. Of all the things that Jesus could have possibly done and all the stories he could have possibly come up with to show us the essence of sin is he didn't come up with a murderer or a rapist or a thief. He comes, he comes up with somebody who simply says, Dad, give me the gifts, but don't give me you. This is what sin is. This is the essence of prodigal living. This is the essence of lostness, to reject the Father. To be lost, to be a, a prodigal, is to relationally separate yourself and to reject God's. And beloved, this is the story of mankind. Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, this is what sin has always been. Adam and Eve have everything. They've got all the Father's gifts, except one, where God said, do not touch, or do not have, do not eat. Excuse me, I'm even quoting the lie of the devil. Do not eat of this fruit. But yet they did that. They said, God, we'd rather be our own gods. We'd rather reject you and have what we want. This is the story of mankind. Don't you see? All of mankind from the beginning of history have been prodigals. That's why we connect to the story so deeply. That's the first reason. First reason you've left home is because you rejected dad. The second reason, it goes right along with it or flows right out of it, is you left home because you were looking for your own place. You were looking for your own life, your own lifestyle. The son's leaving is a heartless rejection of not only the father, but of everything that the father stands for. It's a rejection of all that he was said that he was supposed to be all that he was nurtured into, of the community and the traditions that he was given, of all the morals that he was supposed to live into, all the purposes for which he was supposed to live. It's interesting, Luke writes here, he says that this son, and he left for a distant country. Now that phrase indicates so much more than we might think it is. When we read that, we think of a kid in his gap year, right? Somebody who's like, sweet, I'm going to go hang out in Europe, I'm going to visit hostels, this is going to be the life. That's not what's going on here. When it says that he leaves home and he goes for a distant country, that is tantamount to saying, I want to leave everything I have ever known. I want to leave all the traditions, all the mores, all the things that my family represents, and I want to live the way I want to live. All the things that my family has held as holy and great, I'm going to reject, I'm going to disregard, and I'm going to go make my own life. You see, when you leave the father and you leave his home, you're not simply rejecting the father. You're rejecting his purposes. 
And in fact, you're rejecting his voice entirely. You're rejecting actually all that the Father has said who you are. Henry Nouwen, who has a great book in which he walks through um, his reflections on Rembrandt's painting on the prodigal son. Rembrandt has two paintings of the prodigal. One early on in his life as an artist, and then one of the last paintings he ever does, 30 years later, is a, a, a painting he ret- entitles The Return of the Prodigal Son. And now and goes through his reflections on this painting and connects it to the actual account of the prodigal. And he says this, one quote that hit me and struck me and went home to my own heart was this. He says this, Leaving home is much more than simply an historical event bound to time and place. It is the denial of the spiritual reality that I belong to God with every part of my being. In other words, you're rejecting God as not only Father, but as Creator. That God holds me safe in an internal embrace. That I am indeed carved in the palms of God's hands and hidden in their shadows. Leaving home means ignoring the truth that God has fashioned me in secret, molded me in the depths of the earth, and knitted me together in my mother's womb. Leaving home is living as if God the Father has never told you who you are. It's a rejection of the identity that God has given you as his child. It's saying, I don't want you in my life. Leaving home is living as though I do not yet have a home, and I must look far and wide to make my own. Listen, even if you're someone who doesn't consider yourself to be a prodigal, you're living out the Christian life. I I know for me, I am constantly surprised how I am taking God the Father's good gifts, and I keep using them to impress you people right? If I have been given a gift to speak and to communicate, 90% of the time, it's for my own glory. What are the gifts that God has given you that you simply use them to receive your own affirmation and your own praise, to develop your own kind of little kingdom and your own little world and your own little home instead of living for the glory of God? It's almost as if we want to prove to ourselves and to the world that we don't need God's love. That we don't need his voice. That we don't need him to tell us who we are and what our identity is and what our purposes are. We want to be fully and completely and utterly independent of him. Beneath, beneath it all, beneath your desire to use all of God's good gifts and misuse them for your own glory, beneath that desire is a great rebellion. And you need to understand this. It is the radical no to the Father's love, and it's the unspoken curse that says, God, I love your gifts, thank you, but I wish you were dead. That's why we have left home. You understand why you left home? It's because you're rejecting God as your Father, as the one who gave you your identity, and you rejected all that he stands for. That's the first thing you've got to see is why you left home. The second thing you've got to see is you've got to ponder why you want to go home. You want to get home and you want to experience home in the way in God's the Father's kiss and his love, and you've got to ponder why you want to go home. And there's two reasons why, and I think show up in this text. The first is this is you want to go home because the pigs stink. You want to go home because the pigs stink. What happens in the story, right? The prodigal is living a life for himself. It seems all great and glorious until a famine hits, and then everything goes wrong, and he ends up feeding pigs. And in fact, not only just feeding the pigs, it appears that he's living with the pigs. Now understand this. Who is Jesus speaking to in this context? To good Jewish people. What are Jewish people are not supposed to hang around? Pork. That's right. 
And yet, so what, what the, Jesus is communicating here in this parable is this guy has hit the lowest of the low. He's hanging out with pigs. But this is the lowest of the low. You can't get any worse than this. It says in verse 17, though, that what happens? He starts to smell the pigs, doesn't he? What does it say? In verse 17, it's a great turning point. It says he came to his senses. What did he come to realize? He came to realize that his life, it stinks. Some of you are being woken up to the reality that your life stinks, and it isn't bacon you smell. It's pre-bacon. You're smelling where the sausage is made, and it's your life, and it's nasty. And that is the grace of God. Coming to your senses is an awakening to the condition, the true condition and position of your life. If you're going to come back to the Father, if you're going to come back home, you've got to see how nasty it is where you're living. Now listen, you may be in a beautiful, glorious house, but your life is nasty. You may be wearing the nicest clothes, but your life is nasty. You don't have the Father. Coming to the end of yourself is what we call this. Coming to the end of yourself is when you're forced to face the reality of your life. That life is not what you thought it was going to be. When you finally say to yourself, my life stinks, and I think I did this. It's my own B.O. that I smell. Coming to the end of your life and saying, my life stinks, and I'm responsible for it. And when you smell the pigs, you say this, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. How did you get where you are, though? You also got to realize that. When you begin to smell and go, oh my goodness, my life's in shambles, my life is empty, my life is shallow, my life is a mess, it immediately begins, you begin to think about how in the world you got to that place of how you rejected the Father. And you begin to think about how ever since you rejected the Father, you've been asking this question, to whom will I go to tell me who I am? This is what the, what the Son does, and this is what all prodigals do. Remember, when you've rejected the Father and you've rejected the Father's voice, the voice that says, you are my beloved. And if you reject that voice and you run for him, guess what you're going to do? You're going to spend the rest of your life going from thing to thing saying, am I your beloved? Am I your beloved? And I'm your, am I your beloved? You're going to try to keep control and make a world of your own. You'll keep running around asking everything. Do you really love me? Do you love me? The world says, here's what the world says, and here's what this man found out, right? Everything was all hunky-dory, Right? as long as he had something to give to the world. As long as he could buy all the drinks at the bar, everything was good. As long as he was socially acceptable, everything was all great. What happens when he ran out of money? He got spit out. You see, what the world says is this. The world says, we'll love you if you're good looking. The world's love, we love you if you got a good education or if you got the right clothes or if you got the right relationships, if you're intelligent or you have a good job. If you have something to give to us, then we'll love you. Well, what happens when you don't have anything to give? You see, the world's love is always conditional. It's an always, you are my beloved, if, if. You know, you're homeless. You're homeless and you're spiritually lost if you don't feel you have a place of permanent love and acceptance. You see, some of you may look at your life and you go, my life isn't so bad. But you actually, when you evaluate your heart and your soul, you look at it and you go, nobody really loves me without, without conditions. I don't have a place where I'm loved and accepted fully and completely as I am. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, you're, so many of you are going from job to job, from career to career, from person to person, looking for home. 
looking for the relationship that only the Father can give you. That's how your life turned into a mess. The younger son became fully aware of how lost he was. Did you see this? When no one in his surroundings care about him any longer. Just no one will even give him the food that they give to pigs. That's how bad his life has gotten. Listen, are you living a life where no one will even give you the food they give to pigs? You're pushed aside. When the younger son was no longer considered an asset to people, he suddenly began to realize his isolation and his loneliness and his homelessness. And it was part and part this that brought him to his senses. Now here's the problem. When you come to your senses at how alienated you are from relationships and how much life stinks, you have a couple options. One, you can tell your life, you can tell yourself lies again, and you can find another city to go to, and you can do it all over again. Or you can, you can realize that this is all that life is ever going to be, and you can roll over and die. It may not be physical death, but it may be spiritual, emotional, relational death in which you simply give up. What is it, and this is critical, what is it in the moment of coming to his senses in the midst of this misery that causes the prodigal to go home? What is it? It's the second thing that you need. You want to go home, not just because your life stinks and the pigs stink, but because of the goodness of the Father. You begin to remember the moisture of the Father's kiss on your cheek. And the feeling of his embrace. Let me show you something. When the prodigal begins to realize what he's done, what does he begin to think about? What does his mind go to? It goes to the father's house. In my house, even there, the servants, the lowest of the low in my father's house, they're not starving. They have food to spare. Now, I don't think this is overly profound or anything crazy, but let me ask this. What is home? If you spend way too much time in Cracker Barrels, you're going to say home is where the heart is. And no one actually knows what that means. But immediately, actually, really, if we get in the context of what's going on here, home is where the Father is. Home, what we mean is relationships. It is well known that children who grow up without a home and a family, they have attachment issues for the rest of their life, for many of them. See, home is the place where you experience and you know you're loved and you're accepted. And listen, if you've experienced that kind of home, it clings to you like white on a rice, and it whispers to you even when you've rejected everything about home. And that's what the son remembers. He remembers that home is a place where he could be known and loved and accepted. Another Henry Nouwen quote for you. He says this, Home is the center of my being where I can hear the voice that says, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Understand this. Some of you are Calvinists. Some of you are just good hellfire and brimstone evangelicals. And you think the start of the gospel message is that you're a sinner. But I'm sorry, that is not where the Bible starts. See, who gets the the voice of you are my beloved son comes to Jesus. But that voice, that benediction, benediction is a good word over you. That voice was heard at creation. Genesis 1 and 2, when God has made all the world, and he says, every single day, he says, it is beautiful and it is good. But at the end, he makes Adam and Eve, and what does he say? He looks at them and he says, no, it's not just good, it's very good. That is the whisper of the Imago Dei speaking at the depths of your heart and your soul, the goodness of the Creator. 
You see, you actually cannot rightly understand how far you have fallen as a prodigal and how desperately you need to go home and how desperately you need the gospel until you see how far you've fallen. That you've fallen from the voice that said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are very good. The son remembers it. He remembers the father who knelt next to his bed and whispered to him and said, I like you. I love you. You are my child." What makes the younger brother come home to repentance? Some people think the way religion works is this, and this actually is the way that religion works, but this isn't the way Christianity works. But they think Christianity and religion is this, is that you come home and you repent and you grovel, and then the father says, okay, that's cool, you can come home. But don't you see that the father's love has always been there? The Father's love is preeminent, and it's reaching, and it's whispering, and it's calling out. It is the love of God that awakens to you to the stink of your life. It is, it is a comparison that we need. Phil Kagey, who's one of the greatest guitar players of all time, I sat in front of Phil Kagey when I was in college and saw a concert of his where I sat for two and a half hours. He didn't stop playing for two and a half hours. I don't, I don't know if he has any sense in his fingers whatsoever. Phil Kagey said this in his own testimony. He said, coming to Christ was like waking up from the longest dream, how real all life really seemed until God's love broke through. You see, you need two things to make you want to go home. You've got to realize how much life stinks. And then two, you've got to remember the love and the goodness of the Father. Being confronted with the incomparable goodness and kindness and the love of God is the shining grace that enters in and awakens you to your estate. You know, what's interesting is in the, in the shepherd and the sheep story, it's fairly clear to see that the shepherd has to, he pursues, he physically goes after the sheep. And in the woman in the coin story, she searches and pursues out the coin. And what's here, it seems like, what, what's the father doing? He's not, he's not leaving home and going after the son. But, that's, but he actually is. The pursuit of the father to the son looks different. The father doesn't have to leave the house and run after the boy, but his pursuit isn't physical. It's spiritual and it's emotional. Well, here's what he does. The father, essentially, he keeps them in relationships. Here's how you see it. When the son comes to the father... And he says, I want my inheritance and I want to leave. Here's what every other father would have said. Well, one, he may not have said anything. He may have just simply got out the bullwhip and started beating him. That's actually what they would have done in that culture. He would have said, you wish me dead? All right, you want to be dead? You want to be away from me? I'll make you dead. And they would have rejected him. And he would have sent him out of the house. And he said, I'll have nothing more to do with you. Instead, what does the father do? Instead, the father says, all right, you can have my gifts. And you can reject me so that I can remain in relationship with you. You see, this is actually what God, exactly what, the, 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 the verbiage of the New Testament is this, is that God has been patient. For all of human history, what God has been doing is he has been saying, my prodigals, you may have your inheritance. You may have all the wealth of my good gifts, and you may be gone, and you may reject me. But maybe one day you'll remember me. I'm not going to send you out and put you to death because I hope one day to bring you home. That's the father's pursuit. He stays in connection with him. He, and so the, the, old, the younger brother remembers, and this is what leads the son home. He leads him home to, in repentance. Seems that the father's hands of love, here's what is so beautiful, the father's hands of love and keeping him the good gifts, he's kept the relationship open. He's made it possible still for the son to come home, for him to be the beloved one once again. That is an amazing thing. What are the gifts 
What are the gifts of God that you've been misusing? Maybe, maybe you could stop hearing them as simply being the means of glorifying yourself and begin hearing in those gifts that God keeps giving you, that even in all your sin, he keeps blessing you, and yet, could you hear instead, see, see and say, oh my goodness, the Father remains in relationship to me. He continues to pour out the rain on the just and the unjust. to Give me all these blessings to draw me home. Here's the third thing you've got to see if you want to experience home again. You've got to see what awaits for you at home. Or actually, not just see, you've got to experience it. You've got to experience what awaits for you at home. What awaits this son when he gets up and goes home? Oh, some unbelievable, beautiful expressions of the gospel is what he ex- experiences. The first is this, is he experiences the affection of the father. Verse 20, And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. There is, more, there is hardly a more beautifully stated expression of the gospel in all the scriptures in verse 20. The father had felt compassion. He ran, he embraced, and he kissed him. G.K. Chesterton has said in describing verse 20, he said, this, this is the furious love of God. The father who's sitting on his front porch, it says he feels compassion. Literally in the Greek, it means his intestines were turned upside down. They were ripped in two. Everything with, it was like, Everything within him broke. My son is here. Look at him. Look at the state in which he is in. I can smell him from here. I'm going to run to him. And then what does the father do? He runs. Men over 30 in the ancient Near East, they didn't run. It was considered undignified to lift up your man skirt and run like the chicken or the rooster in Robin Hood. But that's what they would do. It was undignified. It looked ridiculous. They had legs they hadn't seen sun in years. And they were old and scraggly. And what did they do? That's what he does, though. He gets up and he runs to his son. The father ran to the son. He was seeking him out. He has compassion for him. And he ran. How many of you have experienced the run of the father? The run of the father. There's a great story about a girl named Courtney Reisig. She writes for Gospel Coalition, Christianity Today. She tells the story of how she was once the prodigal. Oh, it well describes what God does for this. She tells the story of how her, the most formative event in her life was when for years she had rejected her parents. And she had nothing to do with them, and she was living for herself, and she'd been off at school, and she was bouncing around from school to school and man to man. But one day she'd come to the end of herself, and she called her dad, and she said, Dad, I want to come home. And he said, I'll be on the next plane. So he got on the next plane, but his plane landed because of a storm in some other state. And so he had to end up getting out of that plane and he had to get a car. And he had to drive through snow and sleet, not unlike, I guess, what we experienced this weekend. At least it would be difficult for us as Georgians. And he went and found his daughter. And he brought her home. She said, he packed all my bags because she was sick. She had mononucleosis. She said, I couldn't move off the couch. He packed all my bags. He put them all in the van and he drove me home. The run of the father. The second I called, he said, I'll be there. I'll go through thick and thin, through hell or high water. I will get to you, and I will bring you home. The father does. 
Charles Spurgeon, who was a great British preacher, said this, Slow are our steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. He doesn't walk to you. He runs. He's not slow to forgive. He's slow to get angry, but he's quick to forgive. Father ran, and he embraced him. The father kisses him. The kiss of the father. That makes us uncomfortable, right? The kiss of a man against a man. The kiss of a father to a son. My son already wipes my kisses off. He's uncomfortable with it. Have you experienced the kiss of the father? The kiss that within it, when you, that feeling, that experience of the intimacy of God that says, you are my child, and you stink to high heaven, but I'll kiss your dirty cheeks. Another story for you. James Bailey tells a story when his son Tim had rejected the family. They hadn't heard from Tim in, in, in quite a long time. Tim was living a druggy lifestyle. He had divorced himself from everything that his family knew. He was living a completely wayward lifestyle. But one night, Mr. Joseph got a call from the police station. What he thought the police station is in town and saying his son was incarcerated for a DUI and that if he wanted to bail his son out of jail, he'd need to come down. So he got out of bed. He drove down to the nearest police station thinking that's probably where his son was at, but his son wasn't there. He didn't know where his son was at, and so he kept looking at police station after police station all through the night. He would go out to, to all these police stations fi- trying to find out if that's where his son was at. He wasn't. So finally, he, he, he had an address for where his son lived in Chicago, in downtown. And so he drove into the city, and at 4 a.m., he, he got to his son's house, and he noticed that the door of the house was open. So he walked into the house, and he sees it's all dark. And he pushes the door open, and he sees, all he sees is this figure on the, sleeping on a mat of this crack house. He doesn't say anything. He simply walks up to his son, and he kisses him. He turns around, and he leaves. Well, about six months later, Tim suddenly became, started to be involved in the family again. He came back around. He started going back to church. And within the next couple of years, Tim's life began to come back in order. And a number of years later, Joseph asked, turned to his son. He said, son, what was, what was, what was the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back? What was it that brought you home? And Tim said, Dad, don't you know? Don't you know that night when you got called about me being in jail for a DUI? That was a friend of mine prank calling you. And when you came to my door and when you came to my house in the city at 4 a.m., I was wide awake. I didn't say anything to you. I closed my eyes so you wouldn't think I was awake. But when you kissed me like that, I knew you loved me and it was time to come home. The kiss of the Father Have you experienced it? This is what it is to be found, brothers and sisters. Second, you got to see and experience when you come come home is you also got to experience the rejoicing of the Father. It's interesting, the main point of all three of these parables, it's, it's not only that God seeks out sinners, and not only that he brings them home and they are found, but in all three parables, how do they end? There's a party. There's rejoicing. What happens? The father throws a party and he brings the sinner in. 
He eats with the son, and this is an expression of intimacy. To eat with someone, as it is, as it starts in chapter 15, who is Jesus eating with? The worst of sinners. He's celebrating and partying with them. He's saying, I am your friend, and we are in relationship with one another. These parables are the answer to the grumbling of the Pharisees with the gladness of God. The gladness of God of what happens when sinners return. Verse 7, what's it say in the account of the, of the sheep? Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 9 and 10, and when she was found, when she found it, she calls together all her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And bring the fattened calf, it says in verse 23, and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son that was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And finally, verse 32, it is fitting to celebrate, he says to the older brother, and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, he was lost and is found. Each parable ends with what? With celebration, with rejoicing, and with parting. As religious folks, what do we think... As religious people, here's what we think Jesus should be doing, or the Father should do, is the Father should slaughter a lamb and we should go have a church service. But that's not what he does. What's he say? He said, get the fillets out, get the best wine out, and we're going to celebrate. You know why? Because that is a reflection of who God is. Got some jokes for you. You like jokes? <laughs> if you cross a cow and a duck, what do you get? Milk and quackers. If you cross an octopus and a cow, what do you get? A self-milking cow. If you cross a four-leaf clover and poison ivy, what do you get? A good luck rash. Or a rash of good luck. What happens when you cross a rock and a Presbyterian? Nothing. They're the same thing. We laugh because it's true. We have a God who celebrates. And some of you are like, we've got to be serious. The reverence of God. Listen, the reverence of God means you understand what he's done for you. And you don't take it lightly. And you celebrate like one who has been forgiven. And so you celebrate. Our God celebrates. Did you know in the Old Testament they have all these ties? We talked about ties earlier. You know, you know why they had those ties? A lot of those, a lot of the money that they brought in, and they would not just bring finances, but they'd also bring wine, and they would bring food. You know why was that? Because the festivals of the Old Testament. You know what they were going to do? They were going to have a nationwide party. That's what they were going to do. If only we had a line item in our budget that said partying for the sake and the glory of Jesus. It'd be far more Old Testament of us. And you think the Old Testament God is severe. Understand this. I may be laboring this just a little bit. But understand this with each of these parables. Understand it's saying that God is like the shepherd. And he's like the woman. And he's like the father. Which means this. If, if a father would celebrate of one son coming home, how much more will God the Father celebrate with tears and joy when his prodigal children come home. You hear the dancing and the singing. The son hears it out in the fields. 
That's how loud they're celebrating is. All heaven rejoices over the return. Angels don't get wings. They get songs when, when people come home. God calls all the angels of heaven, Michael and Gabriel, and all the other names of the angels to sing and to rejoice when prodigals come home. Here's what it says in Zephaniah 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exalt with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, the King of Israel, the Lord. He is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said, Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with quiet singing, with loud singing, with loud singing. How is heaven described? It's a banqueting table. And like the parable or the story of Jesus turning the water into wine at Cana, the wine gets better and better. And guess what? Because of that, your singing gets better and better. <laughs> Last thing to say, if you're going to come home and experience a welcome home, you've got to understand what it costs to bring you home. You say, I don't see the father spending a whole lot to get the son home. I don't see him, you know, putting forth a lot of, you know, the son says I'm going to compensate for things, but the father says, nah, nah, nah. Okay, so he like, Let's the son default on a loan of sorts. You've got to understand how families worked back then. If he's actually going to make him a son, guess what? He brings him back into the inheritance. He gets an inheritance again, which means, which means he says to the older son, the older brother, who's really angry later on, he says, everything I have is yours. But part of what he has now is going to go back to the, to the younger brother. He's going to be brought back into the inheritance at the expense, not of the father, but of the older brother. Now, in this story, this guy's got a cruddy older brother. He's really hacked off, and we'll look at that next week. But the whole point of this parable and the beauty of it is that the storyteller is the older brother. You see, God did. It cost God a lot to give you an inheritance, to put a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet. It cost him the older son and that is the story of the gospel. And that is why Jesus came. To leave home. To seek you out. It says he came to seek and save the lost. And to die for you so that you may be brought back into the family. So that you may hear the voice again. You are my beloved son and daughter. And it cost him his blood. And it cost him his life. So that we might be brought back into the family of God. That's the gospel. How should you respond? Let me be very clear. It doesn't matter whether you've walked an aisle a hundred times and you've been a Christian since you came out of the womb or whether you've truly been living the prodigal life and you like, I mean, you were drunk coming in. That's you. It doesn't matter. There's one answer. There's one thing to respond. It's to repent, which means this. It, begins, it means you smell the stink of your life. And you go, I don't want this anymore, and I'm going to turn away from it, and I'm going to go home. And the second is you believe. You believe that God would love a sinner, a stinking prodigal like you. That's the gospel. So I'm going to pray. 
because I am a prodigal who needs God. So feel free to pray along with me.